Good morning, Grace Church. Why don't we open with a word of prayer? Dear Lord, uh, we come to you this morning and uh, aware that this is a momentous week in our nation's history. And Lord, we're so grateful that uh, we belong to you, that we have been adopted into your family. And whatever the results of the elections this week, you, you are King of Kings, you are Lord of Lords, and our allegiance is to you. And we are citizens of your kingdom. We live under your reign, under your rule, and we live as salt and light uh, in our world. So Lord, uh, help us to lean into our identity, our calling, uh, our place, our people, that we are, that we are yours. Uh, help us to extend love and grace and compassion uh, to those around us. And help us today, Lord, as we, as we look into your word, uh, may our minds and hearts be open to your spirit. In your name, amen. Well, here's a, a risky question, uh, a, a dangerous question. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. Here it is. Have you ever asked someone close to you, a, a friend, someone you live with, a family member, what is it about me that is hard to live with? What is it about me that's difficult or challenging for you in our relationship, in our friendship? What do you bump up against in me that you wish were different? That's a risky question. I remember several years ago now, I was thinking about various friends in my life and, and thinking about what I was grateful for about them. But then I would think, but there is this one thing, or there is that part of them, or there all that, there's that one time, and, and, and I would bump up against something that um, wasn't easy for me, that felt hard, that felt challenging. And I had the thought, I, I wonder what they experience about me in that way. So I asked them, and, and uh, those were some interesting conversations. It's, it's a risky question. It's a dangerous question. It's actually risky for both the one asking and the one answering. Because if I tell you what's challenging, what's difficult about my friendship with you, about my relationship with you, really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm confessing where I'm limited in our relationship. I'm confessing and acknowledging the limits of my grace, of my love, of my forgiveness, of my mercy, of my acceptance. And so it's telling as much about the person asking the question as it is about the person answering the question. Some place between one person's limits and the dimensions of the personality of the other person we experience estrangement. We, we experience one another as strangers. There, there are parts of us that are hard to have room and have space for. Pastor Daniel has been helping us and challenging us when it comes to this topic of hospitality. How do we make room for the stranger or what is strange about those with whom we're in contact? Last week, Daniel talked about both the unknown stranger 
and the known stranger. The, the unknown stranger is that person who's, who's so far outside of our normal way of life. They're, they're so different, they're, they're so other, that we really don't intersect with them very much. They're the unknown stranger. Perhaps for some of us, the homeless, or the refugee, or the culturally different. These people are so unknown, they're strange to us in a way that, that it, it's very hard to be with them. It's very hard to cross what needs to be crossed to embrace, to open our table, to open our lives to them. And then, of course, there's the, the known stranger. These are the people we rub shoulders with every day, our, our family members, uh, um, uh, our neighbors, the, the people we work with. We, we know them quite well, and yet, again, there's going to be those dimensions, those, those parts where, where we are estranged, where we struggle to open ourselves. We're limited in our grace, in our acceptance, in our love for that person. And yet, as we've talked about, we were all strangers to God. We were estranged and alienated from him. And we have been brought near through his love, his forgiveness, his acceptance, his mercy. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So God has extended his grace. He's extended space to us. Even when we were yet sinners, even when we were difficult to live with, God demonstrates his love for us in this, Paul says, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God came to us. In fact, one of, the, one of the Hebrew words for salvation literally means to bring into a spacious, open environment, to take someone out of a constricted, enclosed oppressed environment and release them into an open spacious environment a safe place and we've experienced going from being aliens and stranger to being embraced by God and now we are called to extend that grace to extend that forgiveness that mercy that love that acceptance that salvific space to extend it to others in 1 John, we often reference, we love because he first loved us. And so out of that embrace, we are called to embrace. And, and yet here's the interesting thing about the Christian life. Just because I believe I'm loved by God and accepted by God and forgiven by God doesn't automatically make it easy for me to love and for you to love and to accept and to forgive. Even though we know we live in that sort of acceptance and mercy, that doesn't automatically make it easy for us or natural for us to extend. And so the question becomes, how do we take the space we have been given and offer it to others, particularly others that are hard, are challenging, others who run up against our own limitations of love, 
limitations of grace. To help us think about this question of how to become more welcoming, become more open to the stranger, we're going to look at Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. And this is in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. And it's in verse 25. There's really uh, two parts to this story, both involving Jesus' interaction with this lawyer. Uh, we say lawyer in the text, but really he was an expert in Mosaic law. Probably the closest thing they had to a lawyer in the first century. This person would have been focused on the Levitical law, the, the, the Torah, and, and focused on all the different ways that those laws can be arranged. And, and there was all sorts of debate about the application of those laws. And this person was an expert in the law, a lawyer. And so in verse 25 of Luke 10, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now this is an interesting part of the story. Uh, we know that Jesus himself in Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus himself identifies these two commandments as the greatest commandments. In fact, Jesus says um, all of the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus himself thought of these two commands as the most important commands in the Jewish tradition. This lawyer agrees. He names these two commands. And Jesus commends him for naming those. Jesus says, you're right. And Jesus also says here that, that you're so right that this is the way to eternal life. These two commands, if you follow them, if you do them, you will have life. You will have salvation. Now, Jesus didn't mean by that if, if, if the lawyer works really hard and keeps the commands, then God will give him salvation. What Jesus is saying is this is really what it's all about. Th these two commands to, to love God with our whole being and then to extend that love to our neighbors, that's it. Th that's what human life was meant to be. This is the good life. This is life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you've got it. Enter into loving relationship with God and out of that into loving relationship with others and you've entered into shalom. You've entered into this never-ending, eternal life. Paul in Romans 13 and Galatians 5 actually says that, that all of the law can be summed up in just the second command, to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's what this story goes to. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And as we think about the stranger, how do we, how do we love our neighbor? And, and who does our neighbor include? Does it include the stranger? One thing that can be helpful is to look at this, this Levitical command of loving your neighbor as yourself within its, within its Old Testament context. So again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Leviticus 19. It's going to be up on the screen here in a second. But Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9, this is where we have the 
context in the Old Testament for this command that the lawyer is quoting, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at Leviticus uh, 19, actually it's down in verse 18, where we see the love command, love your neighbor as yourself. But all of what comes before it, starting in, in verse uh, 9, is, is really a, a description of what it looks like. So, so read with me. When you gather in the harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field, and you must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must not pick your vineyard bare, and you must not gather up the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You must leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You must not steal, you must not tell lies, and you must not deal falsely with your fellow citizen. You must not swear falsely in my name so that you do not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You must not oppress your neighbor or commit robbery against him. You must not withhold the wages of the hired laborer overnight until morning. You must not curse a deaf person or put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. You must not deal unjustly in judgment. You must neither show partiality to the poor nor honor to the rich. You must judge your fellow, fellow, fellow citizen fairly. You must not go about as a slanderer among your people. You must not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. I am the Lord. You must not hate your brother in your heart. You must, not, you must surely reprove your fellow citizen so that you do not incur sin on account of him. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people. And then here we have it. But you must love your neighbor as yourself. Again, most commentators think that this, this final command to love your neighbor as yourself is a kind of summary of all that's been stated. So to love one's neighbor as oneself would be to pursue the good of those around you, to pursue their well-being, their shalom, especially when they're in particular need. It's actually to love them to the same degree you love yourself, to pursue their good, their well-being, in the same sort of way we pursue our own good, in our own well-being. It's quite challenging, really. It's not go off and, and, and make enough money and get enough resources for myself and then help others out. It's as I'm pursuing my own good, as I'm pursuing my own needs and well-being, I'm also equally pursuing the good and well-being of those around me. That's quite a high bar. That's a pretty demanding ethic. And because it was, in this time, there was a tendency to, to take the edge off it, to, to interpret the second commandment in such a way that it limits, it, it, it circumscribes the scope of who is our neighbor. Because if it turns out our neighbor really, uh, they're not that many people, then, then this command wouldn't be too hard to live. There was a common way of taking this that it certainly only included Jews. It wouldn't include Gentiles. And perhaps neighbor only meant, on some interpretations, righteous Jews, uh, ritually, ritually pure or clean Jews. You see, that would be very convenient. Because if it only includes the ritually pure Jewish person, the righteous Jew, then those people are usually doing pretty good already. So I wouldn't have to really sacrifice very much. And the lawyer in the parable here, as Jesus goes on to tell it, is, is caught up in this discussion. Who is my neighbor? So look at verse 29. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with this story, with this parable. You've heard it before, but but listen to it again. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, there are various things to notice about this story Uh, The priest and the Levite, the Levite is probably a a temple assistant, um, would not have been thought to be doing something horribly wrong by passing the man who was beaten. Uh, Within the the understanding of the Torah, the the Jewish law at that time, uh, ritual purity was very, very important, particularly for a priest and a Levite. And so to maintain purity, they wouldn't have known if the man was dead, and so they would have passed on the other side. That wouldn't have been too shocking. What was shocking about Jesus' story is that the person who goes to the man and risks being impure is a Samaritan. Of course, the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies. They were estranged. They, they despised one another culturally, religiously, racially. Uh, they did not get along, and there was a long history to this. And so for Jesus to use a Samaritan as the one who got it right, as the one who showed mercy, was actually showing the lawyer the extent of the command to love neighbor as yourself. Because it's interesting, Jesus doesn't really answer the lawyer's question. The lawyer's question is, who is my neighbor? And the question Jesus puts to the lawyer is a different question. Which of these three acted neighborly? Which of these three was a good neighbor? And it turned out to be the person that a Jewish person would least expect. In asking this different question, Jesus actually answers the lawyer question. If you become a loving person, if you become neighborly, you won't be worried about whether the person is okay to help or not, whether they're one of my own or not. The person who becomes the loving neighbor, the good Samaritan, goes out of their way to help the stranger, whoever it may be. It looks like this love command to love our neighbor as ourself extends to anyone in need who's in reach of our care. Vincent van Gogh painted uh, a version of the Good Samaritan. And in this picture, I don't know all of what you notice, 
But one of the things that was pointed out to me was the burden that the man is placing on the Good Samaritan as the Good Samaritan pushes the injured man onto the horse or donkey. And so we see from the story of the Good Samaritan that the key to loving our neighbor is to love those who are in need and who are in the reach of our care. But that doesn't still answer our question. How do we become this sort of person? Uh, How do we become the one who's willing to take on that burden? How do we become a person who loves neighbor in the same sort of way we love ourselves? How can we extend our love, our grace, our mercy, our forgiveness, our acceptance to those around us, again, even those who feel hard for us? Well, that's a long story. How do we become that kind of person? You might think that answering that question is what it's all about when it comes to the Christian life and our life together as Jesus followers. There's really just one window we get into that question here with the story of the Good Samaritan. There's one window into what it looks like to become that kind of person, to become the person who loves in that way. Uh, Jesus Jesus makes it quite clear in the text that the priest sees the man and passes by in verse 31. The Levites saw the man and passed by in 32. But notice what's different about the Samaritan. It's, It's really the only thing that we can see that's different that precedes his action of love. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He went to him. When the Samaritan saw him, something happened. He, he felt compassion. Compassion is to be moved in one's inwards, in one's gut for the good of the other. It's to have passion for the one who is suffering. And the Samaritan feels that compassion. And in fact, there's six acts that follow from his compassion. Six compassion-filled acts. He goes up to him. He treats his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him. And then he pays the innkeeper to continue his care. Indeed, he incentivizes the innkeeper to take care of him for as long as is needed. And it looks like that's what compassion will do. Compassion draws near. It it touches our woundedness with healing ointment. It rescues us out of trouble and brings us to a safe place where we are cared for. Joshua Jip reflects on this passage and says this, the Samaritan not only saw the beaten and half-dead man, but also felt compassion when he saw him. This is an empathic response that enters into the suffering and needs of others. And this compassion might be tied to grief, sadness, or anger at experiencing the needs of another fellow human being. Susan Holman refers to this as sensing need and as the process by which we are aware of persons outside of ourselves who are effectively touching our nerves in response to particular concerns. 
The difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite is that the Samaritan's nerves were touched. He saw, he felt compassion, and he came to help. We cannot pass by this quality of compassion too quickly. Uh, This word compassion is only used 12 times in the Gospels. And eight of those times all refer to Jesus's compassionate ministry. Look at these with me. Matthew 9, 36. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me and have nothing to eat. I don't want them to go away hungry. They might faint. Matthew 20, 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Mark 1, 41, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Mark 6, 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 8, 2, I feel compassion for the people. Luke 7, 13, when the Lord saw the widow who had lost her only son, he felt compassion for her and he said, do not weep. And he said to the young man, rise. When Jesus reached out to the leper, when he healed those who were blind, when he fed those who were hungry, when he taught those who were without a shepherd, who were bewildered, he was moved by compassion. Compassion was the form his love took for the good of those around him. There's three stories in which Jesus, is, Jesus uses this word compassion. There's the story of, of, of the judge who forgives a debt because he has compassion for the debtor. There's the story of the prodigal son. And when the father saw the son a long way off, he felt compassion for him and went to him and embraced him. And then there's this story of the good Samaritan. He saw him and felt compassion Compassion is the way Jesus lived his life. It's a fundamental empathic emotion that lovingly drives persons towards others in tangible acts of care. So it looks like the difference, it looks like what makes someone able to reach out to neighbor is at least in part compassion. This this inner desire to help, to do good. But that doesn't answer our question. Our question is, how do we become that kind of person? It pushes our question back. So now we have to ask, how do we become more compassionate? How do we develop compassion for the stranger, for the neighbor, for the one in need and in reach of our care? Well, at least now we're barking up the right tree. Uh, To become a person of compassion is to become more like Jesus. We need to take on the way of Jesus, to take on his easy yoke in his father's kingdom and learn from him how to become a person of love, a person that has compassion for those who are other, for those who are different, for those who are challenging. Uh, 
And here I want to return to the first commandment. Loving God with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul and with all our strength. That's an Old Testament commandment. It comes out of Deuteronomy. The New Testament has a slightly different emphasis. The New Testament is is not so much about our love for God. The primary emphasis is on God's love for us. God's love for us is a precondition for our learning to love him with all our heart, with all our mind. God's first love moves towards us in the person of Jesus and brings us into loving communion with himself. We enter into his grace. We enter into his forgiveness. We enter into his love, his mercy, his acceptance. 1 John 4.10 has it this way. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, his first love. Again, we love because he first loved us. And so it looks like part of becoming a compassionate person is not just to believe that God loves, not just to believe that God accepts or forgives, but to enter into his love, to receive his love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace, to let it sink into our bones, to let it move into our life and we move into it. I love this hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, flowing like a mighty ocean in its current over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. It it paints this picture that God's love, his his grace, his mercy, is something we can swim in. It's all around us, and yet we need to receive it. We need to turn towards it. And as we experience more deeply the love of God, as we we let it move into us, we'll have more space. We'll be set free. We will enter more into that space and freedom of God's love where we're not so concerned about ourselves, not so concerned about getting life the way we want it because we will feel more loved and more cared for and we'll be more open. And one of the things that will start to happen One of the things that will start to happen is we'll start to realize how much God loves those around us. We'll start to see people primarily as beloved children of God. You know, there are those times where we might see the person on the street, the the homeless person or the person begging, and, and, and we might think to ourselves or say to ourselves, you know, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's daughter, that's that's somebody's brother, that's somebody's sister. And that's a good move. We're we're, we're trying to humanize them. We're we're trying to elicit compassion by by connecting that person to someone's family, to even our own family. And yet, it's even more powerful than that, isn't it? It's not that it's someone's son or someone's daughter. That person's a child of God. That person is loved by God. That is God's son. God's child. For God so loved the world. Uh, that means everyone. He, he, he loves everyone. He, he loves all of the people around us. And to begin to not size people up by what they look like or what they wear 
or the car they drive or where they work or who they know or whether it'll look good if I'm with them, but to begin to see people fundamentally as beloved children of God, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in Romans 8, Paul says, and if they're children of God, then they're also potential heirs, heirs to the kingdom of God, joint heirs with Christ, a potential heir to the household of God, the the family estate. And so as we begin to see people more as beloved children of God, loved by God, we'll want to help them. We'll want to do what we can to address their need. 1 John 3.17 says this, But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, How can the love of God reside in such a person? How can the love of God remain in such a person? The answer is, it isn't remaining. The love of God abides and remains in us, and compassion will begin to flow. Now, let me just mention one other thing in closing. As we enter into the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. Again, not just believing it's true, but receiving the truth in our lives. As we begin to experience our lives more and more filled with his love, filled with his grace, filled with his mercy. And that's a long process. But as we begin to experience that, we will begin to feel compassion for others. We will want to extend the grace and the forgiveness we've been given. We'll want to lit lit down our resentment and our lack of forgiveness, and our impatience, and our frustration. And we will begin to extend our love, God's love, to those around us. But then there's this question, well, but, but, but so who should, I, who should I reach out to? And here I just want to say something, just something very practical. You know, there's this buy local movement, right? Buy local, shop local, locally sourced foods. It's called localism. And and I think there's something to be said for love local. Love local. Not necessarily love in your neighborhood or love in your city. And you could love people all around the world. But love local in this sense. Locate. Locate what in you desires good for others. Locate that place in you that has compassion. Locate, localize that part in you that wants to reach out to those in need and then move and see what happens and go from there. Um, During coronavirus, I've been walking with various friends, but one of the friends that I walk with um, has a really nasty habit. It really bothers me. Um, because as we walk uh, his neighborhood, as we walk the streets around his house talking, he, he stops and picks up garbage. He, he stops and picks up trash constantly. And it turns out, I don't really notice usually, but there's a lot of garbage. And he wears gloves now during coronavirus, but he stops and he picks up garbage. And then he says, hey, can we turn around because there's a garbage can up there and I'll, I'll dump this stuff off. And then we walk some more and he picks up more garbage. When I go for a walk, I, I just want to walk. I don't want to pick up garbage. I don't want to be, you know, kind of be stopping every few, few feet. Um, I'm not called to that, but my friend is. He feels compassion 
for his neighbors, and here's a little way that he can help, and he cleans up after those around him. And he's gotten to the point now where he just can't stop. Anywhere he goes, he's picking up trash and throwing it away. As you draw near to the love of God, as his compassion for others, for the needs of those around you, for the needs of those who are even foreign or so different than you, as that compassion begins to emerge, begin there. Start local. Love local. And see where it goes. Who do you have compassion for? What needs around you do you desire to help meet?